Right, well, um, getting into Romans, you can open up your Bibles this morning. I promise I'm actually going to read verses from Romans. Uh, we did a preface last week as we walked through uh, the idea that when you see the gospel, it changes everything. So if you missed last week's preface to Romans, um, there is a message up online that you can go and listen to, and it'll be that way for this entire series as we work through. If you miss any of the weeks, um, we are posting them up online. We've created a special playlist, and you can go ahead and share that with, with your friends, with your family, online, share the playlist or share individual messages, and, um, and we're just excited about what Jesus is showing us and what God is leading us into as we work through this incredible letter that Paul wrote uh, to the church in Rome. And uh, so if you're visiting with us today, or if you're here for the first time, you'll be glad to know that we are in Romans 1 verse 1, all right? So you're like, okay, I haven't missed anything. 1 verse 1, and uh, that's where we'll start. You can open up there so long, but before we get into those verses, um, one of the things that I just really love about the, the book of Romans is that Paul is so passionate about declaring the gospel that he has, that, that, that has been revealed to him that he has discovered, that God showed him. And we know that this was a big thing for Paul because before he was Paul, he was Saul. And as we spoke about last week, he hated the church. He went out to crush the church. He didn't want the church to exist. And he wanted everything to do, he wanted to do everything he could to try and stop the church from achieving its goals and from reaching people. If, you, if you've ever planted a church or been a part of a church plant, like some of the guys that have been us on this journey for a while, you'll know what it's like when you, all you're trying to do is share the goodness of Jesus. And many times, especially when you don't have your own permanent venue, this has been some of what we've had to deal with over the past few years, um, that you would have uh, people storm into a service and try and put an end to the entire service. And we've had that a couple times. I remember one morning getting ready for a, our, our one worship gathering that we were having. And um, a, a man from next door, from one of the, the neighbors, uh, one of the, the complexes that were neighboring to that venue, uh, stormed in in the morning. And, um, and I remember he still called Reino a beard. Uh, because, I mean, if you look at Reino, that's pretty much all you see is a beard. But he was like, this beard told me. And he was just like, going off. And, we're like, and, I, and I knelt down in front of him. I'm like, all we're trying to do is something good in this city. Like, just let us go on. And, and there's this, this, this uh, uh, resistance that you receive whenever you step out to do something for God. And, and, and Paul, who was Saul, was one of these resistors. He didn't like the church, and he went out to crush this movement that had started. Even though his own mentor, Gamaliel, had told him before, if this is of God and we resist it, we'll find ourselves fighting against God. If it's not of God, it'll just die out. But if it is of God, nothing will be able to stop it. And Saul didn't take Gamaliel's advice. He went out to try and stop the church. And here we are sitting at the tip of Africa 2,000 years later. And we're still talking about what Paul wrote. We're still talking about, and, and what's so amazing is so that that same Saul that went out to destroy the church is the one that then um, gets touched by the grace of God. His life gets rocked by the grace of God. He has this supernatural moment where he encounters Jesus and, and, and Ananias, which means grace, goes and prays for him. And as the grace of God lays its hands on him, something like scales falls from his eyes. And he goes from being a persecutor of the church to a promoter of the gospel. He goes from somebody who is against the message to somebody who is so passionate about sharing this great truth, 
that he has found and that has been revealed to him. And, and he, he goes from being an, a, a hater of the church and an enemy of grace to a passionate preacher of the good news. And so he writes this letter to the church in Rome to tell them about what he has discovered or what has been revealed to them, to help them to see the gospel. And what he does is that he lays it out so beautifully in the book of Romans, and he considers all the main points of view, and he's speaking at times to the Jews, and at times to the Gentiles, and at times to the Greeks, and at times to, 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 to the Pharisees, and, and, and different believers in different contexts, because he knows that the church in Rome is made up of, of different people, and, and he shows us from all these different viewpoints how the gospel is applicable and true to all people. He paints them a picture. And the picture that he's painting is a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of God and who God is and what the gospel really is. Can I find out, have any of you ever gotten stuck on YouTube? I don't mean like, I mean, you started watching one video um, about how to cook chicken and, uh, you know, two hours later, you've watched your, your fifth video on the mysterious hamster colony of northern Russia or whatever it is. You know, you've just like, you've just gone so far from your original <laughs> departure point. You, you find yourself kind of at this point, your beard has grown a little bit longer. You haven't eaten in a few days. You know, your kids are a little bit taller. And you're like, what have I done with my life? Because you've been on YouTube so long. And it kind of has this way of sucking you in, especially when it automatically loads the next video and the next video and the next video. And this kind of happens to me all the time. Um, I remember once I started watching rugby highlights on YouTube, and I ended up watching video after video after video, eventually, of people getting stung by the infamous bullet ant, okay? <laughs> if you don't know what a bullet ant is, do yourself a favor, YouTube is available after the service, and you can go find out what a bullet ant is. But um, that's how, you know, I, I, I digressed from what I was originally trying to do, and um, and so in one of these YouTube sessions that I had where I was watching some videos, um, I accidentally ended up watching auditions from like X Factor Germany, okay? So I couldn't even understand what was being said, but I'm watching auditions from X Factor Germany, and um, I think it was Germany, and in this audition, there's a specific artist that comes up on stage, and she has this canvas, there's a black canvas that she's got on the stage. And she begins to take this, this chalk-like paint and she begins to, to paint on this canvas and she, you know, is doing all kinds of lines and then she, she kind of gets a little bit more detailed and obviously she's trying to rush and there's a whole crowd watching her and it takes a little bit too long and the people start booing her. And they're, they're booing, they don't get it, they don't get what she's doing, like this is boring and they're booing and then one by one the judges hit their X's and before you know it, um, they've hit all four of those X's and she's, and she's basically out, all right? So if you haven't watched X Factor, they hit a button, a big X illuminates and, uh, and it basically like, it's not good enough, you're out, you haven't. And she begins to basically almost cry and, and it's like a real emotional moment and people are just like, you're just making lines, it's just like squiggly things and patterns and we don't know what you're doing but they allow her to finish. And when she fin what she does at one point is when she's finished putting all the lines and she was spraying it at one point and doing a bunch of things, she just grabs a bunch of, of like what looked like dust, like gold dust or, or whatever it was, and she threw it against, the, against this canvas and turned it around. And when she turned it around, it was this incredible portrait of a man's face um, that, was, that was on there. And then all of the judges were like, we're so sorry. We, we totally messed up. We're like, we shouldn't have hit our buzzers. We should have let you finish. And we, we should have seen or known at least that you were leading somewhere and that there was something that was going to be revealed. 
And what Paul is actually doing is, is like, when you start reading Romans, you're like, where is he going with this? Like, he starts talking about the righteousness of God and, and about how God's wrath is stored up against unrighteousness. And, and then you're like, whoa. And then he's talking about how all of us fall short of God's glory. And then he talks about how righteousness is revealed by the grace of God. And he goes into all these different things. Um, but by the time he gets to around chapter 11, it's like he's turning that picture around. And all of a sudden, we begin to see Jesus' face. And then he begins to speak after 11 from 12 onwards, 12 to 16. He begins to speak about how we live in, in the light of what we've now re recognized about Jesus and about his grace and about the gospel. So it's this incredible piece of, of art and, uh, and this expression of something so true that, that Paul is, is, is putting together. Uh, a detailed picture that shows us who God is and what his grace is all about. And sometimes when people start reading Romans, um, early on in chapter one and two and three, there's a couple of boos. And people are like, I don't get this. Why? What does this Bible stuff sound so out there? It sounds so, uh, so almost confrontational up front. And, and where is this leading? But uh, what, what I'm encouraging you to do is to stick with it and to see how Paul is putting this incredible picture together. And Paul is confident, even though he knows that most people don't get the picture yet, he's confident that they will. He's confident that they will see Jesus, that they will recognize who he is because he knows that this is the appointed time for people to see Jesus, to know Jesus, to receive Jesus, to, to give their lives to Jesus. This is the appointed time for the gospel to be known. And so we go to Romans chapter number one and verse one as Paul begins to write his letter. Remember that this was a letter, not a book, so he writes it as a letter. And if you wrote a letter, you would say, dear someone, and you would begin to write uh, an introductory paragraph and say a few things. If you remember letter writing from, from English class, I don't know if they do still teach kids how to do that these days, but um, uh, Romans one verse one, you'll see Paul uh, begin his letter and he says this, and I'm gonna just read the first uh, seven verses and then we're gonna break it up and look at these verses this morning, but Romans 1 verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you. Everybody say, including you. Say, including me. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a, that's a huge intro because, first of all, it's seven verses, but it's one sentence. And secondly, as you can see, there's just so much that Paul puts together as he's painting this picture. He's not just painting one broad stroke uh, line or one broad stroke picture, but he is getting into the detail of what the gospel is. And right from his intro, we find it just packed with truth. And so we're going to look at this a little bit more in detail this morning, but let's, let's just go ahead and pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you so much right now that we can uh, open up your word 
and that it can speak to us and that we can have that same encounter that Saul had on the road to Damascus, God. And as we read that, the words of that self-same man who, 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 who met you on the road and who discovered and, and, and recognized the gospel, we thank you, God, that the same effect can be recreated in us today. We thank you, God, that your spirit will empower us and open our hearts and minds to hear your word and to accept your grace, to receive it and to be changed forever. We thank you for this this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. So Paul starts off in Romans 1 verse 1, introducing himself. And how he introduces himself is he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Before he mentions the fact that he's called to be an apostle or anything else about himself, the first thing that he identifies himself as is a servant. And some translations, if you go back into the Greek, would actually say something stronger, something like a bond servant, something like somebody who has been, has been forgiven such a great debt that there's nothing else he can do with his life but serve God. And this is really what happens when God's grace hits our lives, when, when we recognize who Jesus is. You know, before you recognize this, you think that what you need to do is that you have to serve God. Before you know the gospel, you think, well, I, it's the right thing for me to do to serve God. It's the right thing for me to do to go to church. It's the right thing for me to do to pray with my family. And, and you're doing all kinds of stuff because you have to, because you're told and you've been taught that it's the right thing to do. But when you recognize what Jesus has done for you personally, individually, that this whole story includes you, you don't have to do anything anymore. You want to do. Because it's hit your life. It's changed your life. And I've shared this story a couple of times before, but I remember my wife and I had some neighbors that didn't um, necessarily love anything and, or anyone, and they were just really difficult neighbors, and so some of you that have lived in complexes, you know what I'm talking about, and then they also make the walls only that high, which is also quite sad, so we, we basically, in this complex, and we have these neighbors, and they're just difficult people, and, and they've always got a problem with stuff that's happening, and, and they're always complaining, and, and whatever, and so one Christmas, I said to my wife, she makes, my wife makes the most killer shortbread ever, and I'm like, let's just make some shortbread, and let's just take it over to them with a card for Christmas, and just, you know, say we just wanted to share some love with you um, this Christmas. And so um, one day they're outside, their, their garage is next to ours. And so I walk over and I'm like, here's some biscuits. It's just something small. Here's a card just for Christmas. We just, you know, we wanted to give you this and just share some love with you. And, and I remember the guy, uh, the, this, the, the, this lady's husband, she took it, she took it, he took it, sorry, and, and he looks at it and he looks back at me and he looks down and he looks back at me and all of a sudden you just, something happens in him. Like there's a change and he goes, I don't have anything to give you. And then he's like, wait, 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 come into my garage, come into my garage. And he, I'm like, it's okay, it's okay, I just wanted to give you. And he's like, no, 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 come into my garage. And then he's like, do you fish? Do you do fishing? And he's like, he opens up this cabinet and there's all these fishing lures. And he like takes up this one specific lure and he's like, this lure, I mean, of course, this is the greatest lure. This lure helps me catch fish. You can have this. And he's just like, no, I didn't tell him he needed to do anything. I just gave him some biscuits, but there's a response to what has happened. And what happens when we recognize the gospel and we realize what Jesus has done for us, nobody has to tell you to serve God. Nobody has to tell you to go to church. You don't do things just because it's the right thing to do or the religious thing to do. You do stuff from the heart because it's a response to something that's been done for you. And that's the truest form of serving. If you want to be a servant, you know what servants do? They do stuff because they don't have to. 
That's why even with, with, with uh, uh, em- employees and people that, that work, you can, you can work and you can work for a job or you can work because you believe in something. Even with your family, you can do stuff because you believe it's the right thing to do or you can do stuff because you believe in it. And the truest and most purest form of serving is when you believe in what you're called to do. And this is what, what Paul says. He goes, hey, you know, I'm, 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 I'm the apostle, Paul. I have planted churches. At this point, it was his third missionary journey. He's planted churches all over the known world at that time. But his first word isn't, hey, it's Paul, the great man of God who has planted four churches in 15 locations. We have 16 services every Sunday, and we have so many people attending, and it's really great. And you should look at me. No, he goes, hey, I'm Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That's who we become. When, when the gospel hits our lives, we become servants of Jesus Christ. Set apart, he says. So God did this in his life to set him apart. He's been set apart for use by God, which is essentially what holiness is. The word holiness means consecrated and set apart to be used by God. And he says, I have been set apart, set aside. God has set me aside for this purpose. For what? For the gospel of God. In Galatians, he tells us there's only one gospel. In Acts 20, verse 24, he tells us it's the gospel of grace. And here he says, it's the gospel of God. The word gospel is a word that simply means good news. I have been set apart for the good news of God. God has got some good news for you. He's got some good news for the world. He's got some good news for our lives. He's got some good news for our circumstances. He's got some good news for our walk with him. Verse two, he says, which he promised beforehand through the prophets, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Everybody go ahead and say, which he promised. Which he promised. That's the title of my message this morning, in case you're wondering, which he promised. Because here's what I love about this. God himself, the creator of heaven and earth, made a promise. He made a promise. The one who set all things into motion, he promised something. And what he promised was that he was going to provide, was that he was going to make a plan to redeem all people, was that he was gonna set things right. Every time people complained and argued and begged God for help, God was there saying, I've made a promise and I'm gonna come good on my promise. What happened through the sinfulness of humanity is that we were separated from God. And so often in in our daily lives, if you've lived any amount of time on on this rock called earth, you'll know that there are so many moments in life where we just cry out to God and say, why does the world have to be this way? Why why do these kinds of things need to happen? Why does this happen to me? And we cry out for help. And, And for my own life, the areas where I've cried out the loudest to God is where I recognized flaws and imperfections and and, and sinfulness in my own life. And I'm like, God, I need help. You cry out for help only when you recognize that you can do nothing to help yourself. Like when I'm my shoes untied, I don't go like, help! Because I can tie a shoelace, so I'll just get down and tie it. I I don't need to cry out. My kids, though, they cry out for help because they need help with their shoelaces. And so when we, we, we as a hum, human race, cried out to God often, and I've often cried out to God, because f- 
walking away from our sinfulness and becoming the people that God has called us to be is not something we can do for ourselves. We need help. We need a savior. And so God saw our situation. He saw our our helplessness and our desperate situation that we were in, our desperate circumstance, and he said, I'm going to do something about it. Like he says to Moses, I have heard the the cries of my people and I have come down and now I'm going to deliver them. This was something that God did for the people of Israel as a pattern for what he would do for us through his son Jesus. And so God kept promising that he would do something to redeem us, that he would do something to reconcile us with himself. Don't worry, there's a promise, there is hope. I'm gonna do something about this. And so God devises in in his uh, infinite wisdom the perfect plan, perfect plan for redemption. The only way that we as sinful people could be redeemed. And it's through his son, Jesus. And he puts it into, and, and because God knows all things past, present, and future, he begins to prepare us for this gospel, this good news of what Jesus would do even through the Old Testament, even through the examples of Israel, even through the prophets, even through the stories, he begins to say, don't worry, there's a promise. This promise was made all the way back in Genesis where he said, the woman's seed, capital S, Jesus himself would crush the head of the enemy. There was a promise that our oppression would end. The oppression of sin, the guilt that we faced under the law, it would be crushed by the Son of God. And so he begins to Like when a great movie is coming out, there's trailers that come out a year before. They're like, next summer, this movie's coming out. And there's an anticipation for something as we watch how God is going to fulfill his promise. And he gives us clues about this um, all the way through the Old Testament, from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, to Noah's Ark, to the sacrifice of Isaac, to the Passover lamb in Egypt, to David's defeat of Goliath and his messianic poetry in Psalms to all the utterances of the prophets of Israel, especially prophets like like Isaiah. Prophet after prophet, scripture after scripture, story after story is essentially the promise of one story. It's essentially all the buildup to one great moment that God would send his son Jesus to save his people. This This is what the whole world has been waiting for. We know that the story is about how, and we read that verse this morning in Ephesians 2, how God loves us with this great love with which he loved us. And with this great love with which God loves us so deeply and unconditionally, he decided that in all righteousness, he will find a way to bring the lost home. In all righteousness, he will will welcome us again with open arms. And that he will do all of this on the basis of his grace and his mercy, not on the basis of our ability to be good. So God promised the gospel. He promised the good news through all of the Old Testament. And ultimately, what Paul is expressing is that this is now the fulfillment of everything we've been waiting for. This is it. It's finally here. It's finally here. Have you ever waited for something? Maybe a package to arrive or something that you ordered online or, or, uh, or, or a holiday that you were going or, on or, or maybe it was an overseas trip and you couldn't wait for it and then you wake up on that morning and you're like, it's finally here. 
These days, um, when people get married, their, their uh, countdown is like 600 days or more, like to the day. My, my brother recently got married, and they started their countdown 600 days early. Like, that's a long time. Everybody couldn't wait for the wedding. And when the wedding happened, I remember waking up this, that morning, and, and we were staying at the same guest house, and it's like, it's finally here. We've waited all of this time, and it's arrived And through all of the centuries, the scriptures tell us that the prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and all of those prophets, they would give anything to be alive today, to be able to know the gospel in the fullness that we know it. We don't always realize how blessed we are to live in this age where we don't have to wonder anymore what God is going to do or how he's going to do it. The Messiah has come, the Savior has arrived, and we can simply by faith, receive everything that God has for us. We don't realize that anybody in the Old Testament would have given anything to switch seats with us today. And sometimes we're just like, yeah, I've heard about grace and church and the gospel. No, we've got to understand, the Bible says that even the least of the prophets or, or, or the Christians in today's world are greater than all the Old Testament prophets because of what we know in the gospel. And so it's finally here. The good news of God. I've been set apart, Paul says, to let everybody know that it's here, that the gospel has arrived, that the message and and, and the goodness of God is available not only to the Jews, not to those who keep the law, not to those that are specifically moral, but to everyone who believes. The Bible says, whomsoever believes shall be saved. Whosoever. If you believe, you don't have to be of a certain nation, certain background, certain persuasion. You simply have your faith in Christ. You're saved. It's an incredible, incredible gift. It's the greatest gift in all of history. And so Saul says, I, Paul says, I have been set apart by God to share the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And he goes on there to clarify, what is the good news of God? What is it that we've been waiting for? And he says there, concerning his son. Concerning his son. Who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. It says that he was descended from David because physically there was a messianic prophecy. So in order for people to recognize when this Messiah would finally arrive, there were uh, hundreds of prophecies that were spoken out about where he would be born and, and how he would be born and what he would do and what would happen to him through his crucifixion. His entire life was foretold. And the chances of any one person fulfilling even just a handful of those prophecies is virtually impossible. And Jesus goes, and according to every single messianic prophecy, he arrives in exactly the way that God said that he would arrive. And his life fulfills every single one of those prophecies. And one of the prophecies was that Jesus would be born in the lineage of David, King David, who was a type or a foreshadowing of of, of our eternal King, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus arrives according to the lineage of David, to fulfill that prophecy. In the flesh, he was physically from David, but he wasn't just flesh. 
the Messiah wasn't just flesh. The notion that Jesus was a, a good guy or a moral teacher or, a, or, or just somebody who was um, really great at, at leading people but still just a man is a false notion. And it's false even if you just look at it very practically and pragmatically. Because if he was just a good guy, then why would he go around telling people that he's the son of God? And if that wasn't true, it means he's a liar and then he wasn't moral. And then why would thousands of people and millions of people to this day follow his moral teachings, the moral teachings of a liar? And if he knew that he was lying, then not only was he not moral, but he was evil. If he was misleading thousands of people, he was evil. And if he, if he didn't lie, if he didn't know he was lying, and he really thought he was the son of God, but he wasn't, and he told everybody he was, then he was a lunatic. Then he was completely nuts. Because why would you go around telling people you're the son of God if you're not the son of God? But it's not consistent with how his words have proven to be some of the greatest words and the, and the greatest explanations and, and, and his words and teachings have been studied through the ages and have held up as, as incredible. Even for those who don't believe in God, they're like, this is incredible. It doesn't look like an insane person who wrote it. And so if he wasn't lying and if he wasn't a lunatic, there's only one conclusion and that's that he really was who he said he was. He really is the son of God. And so Jesus fulfills these prophecies, but he wasn't just descended from David. It says he was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And when I read that, I just thought, uh, so sometimes my brain works in a bit of a weird way, but I thought about um, a bunch of guys kind of, kind of having a party. And just imagine there's a bunch of guys at a party and they're, they're all having drinks and they're laughing and they're telling jokes. And someone wants, walks into that party and says, hey guys, just wanna let you know I'm the son of God. I'm the son of God. And they would look at him and go, how do we know? How do you, how do you know that you're the son of God? How do we know? How can we trust that you're the son of God? And he'd be like, well, God sent me from heaven. And I've arrived here because I'm sent from God. They'd be like, okay, like, you know, what has this guy been drinking? No, it, you're, that doesn't mean that you're the son of God just because you say that God sent you. How do we know that you're the son of God? And he's like, well, you know, I, um, I, I'm telling you I'm the son of God. Like, well, that doesn't really cut it. That doesn't really prove anything. Well, well, people flock to hear me teach. And people have seen me do miraculous things. And these guys are like, well, we've heard people teach good things all the time. Um, and, and also, we've heard stories about miracles for many, many years. That doesn't prove that you're the son of God. And so we're still not convinced. And let's say that this is a really rough group of guys and they get tired of him. They're like, you know what? We've had enough of your talking and you're calling yourself the son of God and they end up killing him. And at that party, they kill him and they watch him die. Three days later, they're having a party and they're laughing and joking about this guy who thought he was the son of God and was saying all these things and how they put an end to him and he walks back into the party. Hey guys, I'm the son of God. <laughs> At that point, they're like, you are the son of God. You are, we killed you. We are here. You're the son of God. And that's just what I thought about. You know, you, you, he's descended according to David and people can go, yeah, he's just a descendant to David, just a, you know, another good historical figure. No, he was raised from the dead and that declared in power that he truly is the son of God. Right? He defeated death. 
And so if there was any doubt about whether Jesus was really the Son of God, the resurrection put those doubts to rest and declared, this is the Son of God. And what Jesus did on the cross is that he satisfied the righteous requirements of the law. Because God is righteous and couldn't be unrighteous in forgiving us. If somebody is guilty, a righteous judge would not just say, you know what, you're guilty, there's evidence, but let, you can just go. If a judge did that, people would say he's a bad judge or an unrighteous judge. So God had to find a way to pay the debt that we all owed for our sins to the law, to fulfill every righteous requirement while giving us life. And what he did is that he sent his son Jesus to do this on our behalf. And that's why it says in that verse, do we still have it up there? It says that he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. His resurrection and his new life is according to the righteous requirement of God's law. He is now raised in the spirit of holiness, having fulfilled completely every requirement that the law had. He was raised according to the spirit of holiness. This is what Jesus did. He met every requirement. If I can explain what this is like, it's like if you've ever studied really hard. Imagine you studied really hard for an entrance exam. You've got a board exam or an entrance exam or something that you need to go and do in order to get entrance into a specific career or into a specific college or anything like that. And you, you study hard, you work hard, and then you go to write your exam. And you show up in that morning and you have those normal jitters and a little bit of nervousness and you're running through your mind maps like all of us do before we write exams. And you go and you, you sit down and the paper gets put down in front of you. You say your last prayer, you know, like we always do. I, I pray all the way through because I feel like I need Jesus when I'm doing exams. But you just, you pray and you're like, Jesus, help me with this, and, and, and you're asking God for help, and, and then you turn the page over, and every single answer has already been completed on your behalf, but it's done in your handwriting, and it's 100% correct. It's perfect. That's what Jesus did. If we needed to write an exam to get into heaven, he completed that exam perfectly, but he didn't just do it for you. He did it as you. When he went to the cross, the Bible says we, in Romans 6, 6, were crucified with him on the cross. And when he was raised from the dead, the Bible says that we are raised. If we died with him, we will also be raised with him. And so when Jesus died on the cross, your sinful self died on the cross. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, you were raised from the dead. And if he was raised according to the spirit of holiness, guess what? you've also been raised according to the spirit of holiness. The righteous requirement that we all needed to fulfill in regards to obeying the law, it's already been met on our behalf. And so we don't need to work in order to become righteous. We live from a place of already having been made righteous. Isn't that incredible? The exam has been written for us. Every requirement has been met and we are accepted. So holiness... And holy living is not as much a practice, although it obviously involves practice, as it is a resurrection from the dead. 
It's not so much something that you do as what it is something that you are. You're born into it. You were dead in your trespasses. You were crucified with Christ and you were raised together with him. And you are now the righteousness of God by your faith in Christ Jesus, as Romans declares later on. It's who you are. And so when you live in righteousness and you walk in holiness, you're not trying as an evil person to do something to make yourself better. You're simply walking according to the truth of who you are in Christ. That's all it is. It's a birthright. It's your inheritance. Holiness is your inheritance. And it tells us this. He goes on to say, through whom? His, concerning his son, concerning Jesus. Through whom? We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his, nation, his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ. I'm so glad that I'm called to belong to Christ, that my greatest calling in life beyond anything else is that I belong to him, that my, that my deepest sense of my self-awareness, my significance, my identity isn't wrapped up in all the things I try and do and achieve and earn, but the deepest sense of who I am is that I'm the one whom Jesus loves. I belong to Christ. I'm secure in the knowledge of his love and his grace towards me and the fact that I am his son through whom we've received grace and apostleship. Through the resurrection of Jesus, we all received God's grace. The Bible says in, in the book of Titus that the grace of God leading to salvation has appeared to all men. And, th so, and that word grace means unmerited favor. So you're made right with God. His righteousness is imputed. It's a gift that's given to you, not something that you earn. And so we belong to God. And as people who belong to God, he says, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith. In other words, to go out and to share this news and to see people come to understand and to walk with God themselves. And to put your faith in God is really the core or the essence of obedience. We spoke about this a few weeks ago, but true faith leads to true obedience. You can never have true obedience without truly believing in who you are in Christ or in what Jesus has done for you. Because the Bible says that anything that doesn't come from sin, uh, that, that, sorry, that doesn't come from faith is sin. Anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. In other words, your Bible reading could be sinful if it's not done in faith. And not just in faith, but if your faith in it isn't about building up yourself or making yourself better, but in trusting Jesus. All of our religious actions can be sinful. That's why Jesus, when he came to earth, his strongest words were reserved for the religious people. Because their faith wasn't in God, and it says this in Romans later on, it was in themselves, in their own goodness. So anything that doesn't come from faith in Jesus is sin. It's hostility towards God. But when we submit to God, we live by grace. We understand that it's not us that's good, it's God that's good and, has, and is causing us to become like him. So you receive grace, but the second thing you receive is apostleship. Or he, he speaks about, we have received this apostleship, which means to be sent, a sent one. 
So you've been saved by grace, empowered by grace, but you've also been sent. In other words, we don't just receive the grace of God and then sit down and go, well, it's so awesome that we're, that we're all saved and that we're all, and let's just, let's just high five each other and talk about how awesome it is that we've been saved. No, there's a mission that God has given us. We've not only been, been through him, we did not only receive grace, but we also received apostleship, a mission and a calling. Just like Paul was set apart for the gospel of God, so we have been set apart for the gospel of God. Because when the gospel arrived, and even though God brought Jesus through the nation of Israel, what we understand is that the gospel isn't a private game between God and Israel. But the moment he called Paul and, the, and Jesus died on the cross, the Bible said he did it for the sins of the whole world. And so it became an open market, an open opportunity for all people. And so it really wasn't so much about what God was doing in Israel as much as it was about what God was doing through Israel to all of us. And today we have that equal opportunity to be able to receive God's grace and to know God's grace. This is why in Romans 1 verse 14, Paul says this, he says, I am under obligation. Now that obligation he speaks about when, and, and I always think about this in movies. I don't know if it really ever, has ever happened in real life, but in movies you'll always find, and maybe it's an old kind of ancient honor code, but you'll find that when people, when people have their lives saved, when somebody saves somebody else's life, the person who's been saved often commits their entire lives to serving them um, as, as a way of repaying them for what they've done. And what Paul is saying is that when the grace of God has hit your life, not because you, not because you have to, but because it becomes the only thing that consumes you is you're so changed that you, you're under this obligation. You've been called by God to share. Under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, which were all the, 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 the nations and the tribes and the people that surrounded Rome. Paul's like, I'm gonna come to Rome, but this is not just about Romans. This is about the barbarians. This is about the Greeks. This is about everybody. That was a hectic statement. The Romans were constantly in, in, in battle with these barbarian tribes that came together to try and defeat the Roman Empire. Paul says this, this message is for everyone. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel, the good news to you also in Rome. I gotta share this. I gotta share this. One of my favorite scriptures growing up was the story of, of Jeremiah who gets called as a young man, early 20s, he gets called to be a prophet to the nations. But because he's a prophet, people speak badly about him and people persecute him and people whisper things behind his back and, and, he, and he's just excluded and reviled and, and, and all those kinds of things and, and he gets sick of being a prophet. He's like, I don't wanna be in ministry anymore. I don't wanna talk about Jesus anymore. I'm tired of how difficult it is. And he goes to God and, and he says, God, and what he essentially says, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's in, Roman, it's in Jeremiah 20, you can go and read it, but he goes, God, you deceived me. Like You didn't tell me it was gonna be like this. Because this is what happens. Whenever I speak out in your name, I get reviled and I get persecuted and I get excluded and it's so difficult. And then I say to myself, I will no longer speak in the name of God. But then your word in my heart becomes like a fire, a fire that's shut up in my bones. And I grow weary of holding it in, and indeed I cannot. 
It's like you didn't tell me that when you put your word in my heart, even when I get persecuted, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, I cannot stop because the word of God in my heart is like a fire and it's literally inside of my bones. It's everything that I am and I've got to do all that I can to share the word of God. I cannot stop. There's a fire shut up in my bones. That's what happens when you recognize the gospel. Then nobody has to tell you to bring your friends to church or to share the gospel or to talk about Jesus. You cannot help yourself. You'd write little, little post-its and stick it on your steering wheel when you go to work. Speak less about Jesus today because you're irritating everybody. <laughs> because it's a fire shut up in your bones. And that's not something we put on. That's something that's genuine and sincere in our hearts. In other words, if you've recognized the gospel, and I had to come to you and I said, you know what? You can, never you can never do the things that God has called you to do. You can never serve anymore, and you can never speak to anybody about Jesus. It should lead you to a place, if you've really understood the gospel, where you feel like you're going to explode because of the richness and the fullness of the truth that you have discovered and that's what Paul says, I'm, un, I'm under obligation here, I, I can't help it. I've got to preach the gospel to anybody, whether he's wise, whether he's foolish, whether he's a, a, a Roman or a Greek or a Jew or a, or a barbarian, it doesn't matter who, I have to preach the gospel because I have discovered and, and what has been revealed to me is the essence and the truth of this great thing that God has done and is doing in and through us. And, and, and this calling is something that I cannot walk away from. Cannot walk away from this calling. So we have this responsibility to share the gospel. And it leads people, it produces faith in people. It brings them to the obedience of faith. And this includes us. It includes all of us. That's what happens when we understand what Jesus has done for us. So Paul finishes his introduction here in Romans 1.7. Um, by saying to all those in Rome, and I can say to all those in Joburg today, who are loved by God. You're loved, hey, all, all of you in Joburg today, you are loved by God, and you are called to be saints. You are loved by God. To all those in Joburg today, you are loved by God and called to be saints. And then he says, grace and peace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was Paul's, uh, how he always, it was his, his famous and, and common salutation. But what many people don't know is in the Old Testament, there was a salutation which was peace to you, peace to you. So if somebody left, you wouldn't say goodbye, you would say peace to you. And if you were writing a letter, you would end it. Not kind regards, but peace to you. But now Paul says, grace and peace. Grace to you and peace. Because he knew that there is no way for us to have peace with God or peace with ourselves or peace with one another except through the grace of God. Except through this great gospel that has finally arrived. And it came from our Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's how he starts his letter to the church in Rome. You can go and read those verses again and you'll see how quickly we just skip through those things, but how rich it actually is when you start to stop and just, 
just look at what he's actually saying. And so next, next Sunday, we're going to talk about revealing righteousness. And the first thing that Paul does is that he lays the smack down. He starts telling us why we cannot save ourselves, why we're unrighteous. And then he reveals how God has, has made us righteous. So it's going to be uh, an awesome message next Sunday. Um, just so rich as we go into the, you know, the, the, the rest of Romans 1 and, and into 2. And um, I want to encourage you to be here for that. But can we go ahead this morning and just pray together? Just thank Jesus.